Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Is this recording? Yeah. Is it recording? Yeah. Is it recording? Yes. So help me God, if you don't shut up, we'll stop this podcast and turn it around. Welcome back to the Anime World Order podcast. This is show number 48 for I have no idea when. We're one or two weeks behind. <laughs> Let's just say sometime in February, possibly before MegaCon, maybe afterwards. Who knows? Maybe it wasn't such a good idea to record these episodes ahead. <laughs> no, no, it is a good mm. idea because then when we start missing out on weeks due to life happening... We have an excuse. And it's not like our show is so cutting edge that, oh, it's a week late. That review of Captain Harlock is now totally irrelevant. Dude, Harlock is like so last month. Ah, uh, yeah, I know. And our news is always late so? anyway, so yeah, the fact that it's another week is no different. We fail at podcasting. Anyway, I am your host, Daryl Surratt. And I have other more different hosts with me who know things that I do not know about. And they are these people. <laughs> I am one of those more different hosts, and my name is Gerald Rathgold. And I am an even more different host, and I am Clarissa. But you each know about something that I don't. You have to name that something. Gerald, you were first. The answer is model trains and menstrual cycles. <laughs> oh, I thought the answer was going to be porn and boys having sex with one another. That's a real answer. Oh. <laughs> In any case, each week on the Anime World Order podcast, we review anime as well as manga. We also talk about the news and complain about things that we really have no right to be complaining about because whenever... Gerald does the news, I have no research on what he's talking about, so I just shoot from the hip each time. <laughs> and ten minutes of <laughs> uninformed is... ranting must be deleted. Yes, and then that is, we that end is up why... saying crap, and then people write in, like, you're so wrong, this is totally incorrect. And... Listen, yep. if this approach is good enough for the mainstream media punditry, it is good enough for <laughs> podcasting. Yeah, you have to listen to the news with the mindset of about two weeks ago. When you get that down, then the news makes perfect sense. And you also have to consider that I'm hearing these news for the first time ever each time. So, <laughs> let's go to the emails here. Wait a second, what, what are we doing this week? I'm mixing it up. Oh, 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 yeah. really? Yes, I am mixing it up. I think you just forgot and I, I just caught just you forget. on that. Listen. I'm pretty sure they know how to contact us by now. Right, see? No, we have hundreds of new listeners every episode. And these hundreds and hundreds of new listeners need to be introduced. <laughs> Shut up. To, to this show. Very well. For those of you who did not download this and read the description, in this week's episode of the Anime World Order podcast, I am going to be reviewing a manga from Dark Horse Comics, Satsuma Gishiden. It's by Hiroshi Hirata, who is not really that known here in America because this is like his first manga to be released here in about 25 years. Or at least that's what the 
back of the comic says. <laughs> I'm going to be taking a look at two OAVs, both called The Spirit of Wonder, one from 1992 and one from about ten years later. Why are they uh, titled the same thing? Well, because they're based on the same manga. Ah. Ah. a good reason. Yeah, it is a good reason. And I'm going to be reviewing an OAV series called Mazenkaiser, which features large robots beating the crap out of each other. One of these does not belong. Good old Gona guy. <laughs> yes. Get ready to rip some upholstery out of your seat. Watch us talk about the equivalent of masturbatory robots in a manner that is far too deep and lengthy. I don't yeah. think you can be far too deep and lengthy for Gona guy, all right? Gona guy knows scholarly works and their subtext and commentary and symbolism to be had. Yes, like Hanepe Bazooka, the story of a boy and his penis that happens to be on his index finger. Mm. And that's it. That's also a Kazuo Koike joint, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Why does that not surprise me? We're losing our hundreds of new listeners who are alienated by these names that we're just dropping without ever explaining what they are. So, let's go to the emails. We've got one here from Vincent Hiroyui. Here's what it says. He writes, Hey all, it's a little off topic, but the 1UP podcast for January 26, 2007 had an interesting discussion regarding the elements needed to consider yourself, quote, gaming literate. On the surface, they discussed Mm. the games they considered revolutionary or had some sort of knock-on effect in the gaming industry, whether it was good or bad. They also began to discuss the implications of this concept in terms of reviewing games. For example, do I need to have played every other first-person shooter before I am qualified to review Halo? And if not, how would I be able to determine its strengths and limitations without that prior knowledge? So I got to thinking, this could relate to watching and reviewing anime. What elements slash factors do you guys believe to be important to consider yourself anime literate? P.S. Got the Planet Test box set. Gets better with every episode. Thanks for the recommendation, as I would have totally ignored it. Hmm. This one... Well, that's what we're here for. Yeah. This is an interesting question, because I think that it depends. You don't have to know everything about all kinds of other titles in order to be able to say whether you like something or not. Mm Mm-hmm. However... If you're going to talk about things like how it measures up to other things in order to try and tell people why they should buy, say, Halo instead of another first-person shooter, it's kind of hard to do that if you don't know about the other first-person shooters. As far as anime goes, though, I think what he's trying to say is if there were to be like an E.D. Hirsch dictionary of cultural Mm -hmm. anime literacy, what Mm -hmm. every anime fan should know, is there a series of anime titles that could conceivably fit like, Oh, every anime fan should at least be aware of this ideally. And I think there could be some things, even though there'd never actually be things that everyone would live up to. For example, I kind of think like it or hate it. People should at least know about mobile suit Gundam. Yeah. Yeah. I think people should be familiar with Tezuka. Right. At least his major ones like Astro Boy, Blackjack, Phoenix. Like, when it comes down to reviewing, say, a romantic comedy that's released recently, a lot of the things that we talk about, we kind of begrudge because they're retreads of older shows that did it better. And so is there a romantic comedy that you think everyone should at least know about, if not maybe seen every single episode of? I think that people should probably know about something like Maisuni Koku, and I think that people should maybe know about Kimaguri Orange Road, 
again, not necessarily have to like these things, as we said. Right, right. Just um, be familiar with it. Well, the thing is, we say Tenshi, but I also think Yurusa Yatsura. I mean, can we come up with, like, a generalization for this? A generalization for which one? Specifically romantic comedy? Or all anime in general? All anime in general. It's very hard to, I guess. I think there's I, definitely, I think... like, some sort of basic list you could say, all right, yeah. well, this is important as mm -hmm. far as American anime fandom. It's good to know what Akira is. Right, mm -hmm. It's right. good to at least be familiar with Robotech. Well, that's part of the issue. The titles are going to be different based on whether you're talking about what's important in terms of Japan and what's important in terms of here. Those are going to be different lists because there's things that were really big in Japan that were really influential never made it over here. So people here don't necessarily know about it. Does that like, go on the list? I think I Tomorrow's know. Joe is something that people should know about. Yeah, yeah. but it never really made it but over But then again, here, yeah. Should I people think, know about Kochikame? Should they yeah, bother? I mean... The short yeah. answer is probably look back in some of the earlier decades of anime and look at, number one, the shows that were the most popular. Also, not just that, but look around and see what shows people keep talking about now. Stuff like Gundam or Ashton Joe or Rose of Versailles, people keep talking about it. Say it's say a Fist of the North Star, people keep mentioning those shows. It's obvious that those had a really strong impact on people. But, and as far as today goes, um, you know, people should at least know about Evangelion. I don't necessarily like Evangelion. I would argue that Full Metal Alchemist, you don't have to know about Full Metal Alchemist to be anime literate, because I think it's too new to know if it's had any sort of influence. Maybe beyond to be anime fandom literate, you yeah. should know about Full Metal Alchemist, because at least yeah. to know what is everybody else at this convention aware right. of in some form or fashion, it helps to at least know what Full Metal Alchemist is. Yeah, I don't think you can totally dismiss what's going on now. I mean, obviously, we have no way of knowing which stuff that's going on now is going to matter 50 years from now, but I don't think that you can totally discount what's going on at the moment. So I, I don't mean dismissing like, it. Right, right, I don't so know I about Bleach that... as far as I've never seen an episode of Bleach, but I at least mm. know kind of who the main characters are and what the basic yeah. premise of it is. But, I mean, it's hard to be an anime fan and not at least have that sort of knowledge of a show. You'd like be surprised. You... Yeah. Maybe I would yeah, be, but well, it seems I mean... like it's hard to be an anime fan and not at least know that a show like Bleach exists. Yeah, And know well, some very basic things about it. That's what you would think, but then look at the trivia competitions that we always had at the anime cons. The way that I won the trivia competitions that I did is there's a lot of shows that I haven't seen, but I at least know the basic information about them from looking at magazines and websites and listening to other people talk. Most other people couldn't even do that. I thought a lot of the time you won because you knew one or two weapons on Speed Racer's car. Or... No, actually, I think it was the name of the girl in From Gotchamon. But... Right. <laughs> but similarly, I yeah. think a good rule of thumb a person could follow... Gotchamon's another one, yes. ...would be to yeah. ask yourself... Yes, it is. ...what kind of shows do I like now? Mm -hmm. All right. Where did this show come from? Right. If you like robot shows, maybe you should know about the original Gundam. If you like... Fighting yeah. shows, maybe you should know. I'm not going to say necessarily you have to know about Fist of the North Star in any great detail, but yeah. if you like mm -hmm. romance kind of shows, you should maybe educate right. yourself on what Kimagri Orange Road or what have you is. I would also say whatever stuff you like, whatever like manga or whatever you like, try and look at interviews with the artists that you really like. And whenever somebody asks the inevitable question of, who are your favorite mangaka, or what works really influenced you, look at the list there. 
every single artist or work on it might not be hugely important, but I think it's valuable for you to look at who the people that you're really into were influenced by. And sometimes you get some kind of interesting things, like obviously people like Tezuka or Gonagai or I guess even Kazuo Koike or Leiji Matsumoto have been very influential to a lot of people. But then you've also got artists like Hirohiko Araki and something like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which has actually influenced a lot of other manga artists. So I think that's another way to go about finding things that maybe you should be familiar with. Anyway, just to wrap this one up, I'd say overall, you don't necessarily have to have watched every single show in a given genre before you're quote-unquote no. qualified to review something in that genre. But Mm-mm. it is important to have some sort of context of where some of these conventions came from. Like mm-hmm. Sunrise right. Mecha shows or whatever, a, a lot of them are very similar to Mobile Suit Gundam over the yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Many of them, in fact, are Mobile Suit Gundams <laughs> over <laughs> yeah. the years. That's true. Many sports shows are very influenced by Ashton Ojo, although that is a hard show to find. Right. And I've never even Hoshi. seen Star of the Giants. Star, and Star of, of the Giants, Giants is yeah. one yeah. of the most popular shows in Japan like ever. Yes. There's no fan subs of it. Aim for the Ace, another very hard to find show that right, but very at least some of that was fan subbed, and you can yep. get that online. Yeah. Well, there's also the live action remake, which I think a lot of people I think are a lot of people said that was that horrible. Now. Well, yeah, but a lot of people are familiar with the show through that. Oh, okay. Now, so. Yeah, because it is very recent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much like there's going to be the live action Maisani Koku J drama mm-hmm. as well. There's a live action Attack Number One as well, I believe. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I think there are elements that you could have to consider yourself anime literate. Whether or not they're achievable elements is debatable. We've got another email from Carlos who says, Hello from Portugal. So, I've been meaning to write to you guys in a while, never got around to actually doing it, but show number 44 made me finally do it. Spot on reviews of Mind Game and Yotsubato, both of them among my favorites, especially Yotsubato. One of my preferred printed works, manga, comics, literature, everything. The way this manga transmits a peaceful happiness, the way it shows how beautiful things can be, it's a masterpiece in my opinion. It reminds me somewhat of Calvin and Hobbes in the way that they transport you to a simpler, happier place. Just the fact that Azuma can pull out the expression enjoy everything throughout the manga without sounding corny says a lot. Concerning the podcast in general, I've listened to you for a while now. I found you out when I decided to check out what this podcasting thing is all about. The first ones I heard disappointed me, and I was about to give up on the medium when I ran across a podcast that was both funny and informative. And it was called Dave and Joel. (laughs) (laughs) You should be talking about them, probably, yes. You've been doing a great job of publicizing older, very good works that would otherwise go unnoticed. You've also made me buy a few DVDs. Since here in Portugal the offer is rather short, I usually import American discs, so I'm somewhat a part of your anime market as well. They were Eleven, Giant Robo, Crusher Joe, and Prefectural Earth Defense Force. Oh, and thank you for mentioning Ipatsu Kiki Musume, and especially Sexy Commando. Oh, so very good stuff. Are there any other somewhat older nonsense comedies like these that you would recommend? I've also downloaded MD Geist. Still That's resisting a nonsense to watch comedy. <laughs> I, would, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. Still resisting to watch Odin. Good. Keep fighting the good fight against that one. That's right. Unfortunately, mm. on the manga side, things are a little harder. There are works that you made me curious about, but there aren't stocks to fulfill my curiosity. Oh well. I'm going to order Ode to Kirihito now, just to be on the safe side. If I remember correctly, you haven't reviewed some of my favorite shows. Rurouni Kenshin Suikohen, Kino no Tabi, Boogie Pop Phantom, Tenku no Shiro Laputa, 
Hachimitsu took over. I leave you with a these lot of those are really good suggestions. Yeah. yeah, they are, and we'll probably end up doing some of those. I might do Hachimitsu took over, and maybe we'll do Lapita at some point. I don't. Yeah. Gerald, were you planning on doing Kino no Tabi? I think. Um, I actually don't own the show. I could do it. I just have to rewatch it. Yeah, okay. I watched about half the show and. For no good reason, I stopped watching it. I think the digi-subbing was not Yeah, I think that was like just when it got licensed or something. It got licensed, maybe. and I should and pick up the... the subs were kind of slow, so yeah. What I watched was really, really good. But yeah, we'll probably get around to most, if not all, of those at some point. Just keep your eye out. Anyway, he says, Just wanted to congratulate you three on the podcast and let you know there's someone in Portugal who listens to you religiously. Actually, you've become a part of my weekly routine. Well, I'm off to listen to the new show. Thanks for all the laughs and great anime tips, Carlos. So, goofy anime that's a little bit older. We'd be Dr. remiss Slump. if we didn't... Yeah, say Dr. Slump, obviously. That's Blazing the first Transfer choice. Student. Blazing Transfer Student's mm-hmm. a great one. That's a Gainax one. I love one. that one. Two-part OAV. Yeah, the Gainax mm-hmm. show that nobody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to find online, too. I think yeah. it might have been a VHS capture, but it was probably slightly crappy. Mm-hmm. But that's a really good one. I think Otokojuku is yes. definitely a good one. It's not subbed. Not yet, no. anyway. It hopefully will be Maybe soon. someday, but it's yeah. pretty long. That's the main mm. impediment to getting that right. one subtitled. Well, Dr. Slump is... Is, is incredibly weird. long, yeah. And that's not been subbed anywhere that I can tell. Yeah. Maybe an episode or two was subbed somewhere. I think Urusei Yatsura, which we mentioned already, yeah. is extremely ridiculous. Yes. And that was kind of one Very of the earlier too. shows and just being absolutely okay, we don't care. And yeah. just throwing everything out and going for it. Continuity? What's that? I kind of like, even though this is, isn't as old, but Animego released this VHS called the Super Deformed Double Feature. Oh, yeah. That's loony, and I mean, it's a parody of the making of Gal Force, the movie, and the another one is like say, Wacky Races. I like the SD Gundam shorts as well. Do you think that's funny well. if you haven't watched, like, Gal Force? I don't think they're quite as funny. I think a lot of those SD features, especially the Gundam one, okay, it's funny in and of itself, but it's much funnier if you actually if know what they're the talking show. about. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I know people who have watched that Galforce thing without seeing Galforce and think it's pretty good. So, okay. other older, ridiculous comedies. There's a good bit of them since there was a, quite a bit of slapstick. I remember Dave Merrill had shown clips from this thing called Rampu back oh. during yeah. Anime Hell. <laughs> yeah. And I wish I saw some fan subs of that because it seemed yes. pretty entertaining. Eight Man, if you watch it with the right mindset. <laughs> There's there's certainly something in every episode. Like the episode where he punched the shark and it turned into cans of tuna? That's the mindset that people use whenever they post goofy scans of Silver Age DC comics to show how they're ridiculous. That's not really a, this is zany, <laughs> ridiculous, slapstick humor. I think Gundo Musashi should honorarily count as an old, ridiculous show. I think so, too. Yeah, the I animation think so. quality makes it look like it was animated in the 70s, and it's pretty terribly ridiculous. That belittles the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does. But we're obviously, well. you know, skipping some things. What is Dragon other... Half is yeah. kind of, it's yeah, getting newer, up in yeah. years now. What was hilarious? Oh, Grave of the Fireflies was hilarious. I couldn't Man. stop laughing. Man, that was just joke a minute. I wanted me some drops of candy, whatever they call it. <laughs> Fruit drops, yes. <laughs> they actually sold those as merchandising tie-ins. Like, get the official Grave of the Fireflies. Oh my god, really? Fruit drop can. <laughs> yes, they did. 
most oh, inappropriate no. merchandising. You would think if there would ever. be one thing that they wouldn't sell merchandise for, it would be that. But. Oh, in the news, we've got even oh, better merchandising. Well, let's get to that then. Before we get to that, let's just say if you would like to send us emails, you can drop us a line at animeworldorder at gmail.com. You can also send us voicemail, which we didn't play any of. We've got plenty of them, but we didn't play any. <laughs> you can call us up 206-666-4AWO is the number. You can also leave us MP3 feedback as well, but nobody does that, so I'm not even going to talk about audio, <laughs> hootie hootie, whatever crap. So... <laughs> On that note, we have some pretty exceptional news to get into. Let's news! Working to restore power. A lot of news to talk about this week, so let's get right to it. First up, going along with the downloadable content bandwagon, Kadokawa Holdings has decided that they're going to start distributing some of their movies via BitTorrent. This is kind of significant in that, from what I've read, it seems like they're starting this in the U.S., uh, I guess due to uh, pirating, and they're going to be distributing such things as The Ring. I imagine that would be the Japanese version. And they plan to start with about 30 movies, and they expect to expand to about 300 of them. Obviously, since you mentioned The Ring, are these all live-action films, or is there anime as well? That is the thing, is that it just says Kadokawa Pictures. I'm not sure about this. Kadokawa is a very old, long-running company, and we know them here as having done quite a bit of anime. I mean, they were involved in a lot of the big things from the 80s, like um, Armageddon. Absolute Zero! They Dagger still do Cannon. stuff like Full Metal Panic. That Full Metal right. Panic is theirs. Gatekeepers is theirs. People might remember like Record of Lotus War. That was a really big OAV yeah. right. back in the 90s. Probably the biggest OAV series along with 0083. They're the publisher of all the Gundam manga, but we can forget about that. Yeah. That's another guy who got busted for cocaine, right? <laughs> that Haruki Kadokawa. Yeah. Wait a second. Who was the one that had howitzer shells? That's the niche. But anyway, there's no word that there's going to be any anime distributed through this. I guess we just don't really know just yet. And again, I hope that this works out and they don't do it in a stupid way. Of course, the oldest saying among anime fans is no one can screw things up like the Japanese. To Katakawa's benefit, I thought they did a really good job on Full Metal Panic, the second raid. Yeah. Yes. And they've been overseeing some other things. Like, aren't they doing Haruhi Suzumiya soon? They are. They're doing that themselves. Obviously, that hasn't come out yet, but mm -hmm. the signs seem that they might know what they're doing on that one. Depending on how much you like those live-action videos that they keep putting out. I just say that because also, as we talk about this, um, Yamato Toys is now kind of expanding their U.S.-based operations. I mentioned this in the same line with Katakawa because I was actually wandering around on Yamato Toys site. Yamato Toys, they put out a lot of uh, model kits and they put out some anime figures and things like that. And I was looking at this one figure from uh, Darkstalkers. They wanted about $194 for it. And I went to Hobby Link Japan, which is another very well-known site if you want any sort of figures and things from Japan, and they wanted about $120 for it. Yeah, the problem mm -hmm. is when you order something from Hobby Link Japan, the shipping is ridiculously high. So if you don't make an order that's at least over $200 from Hobby Link, you're wasting money. But I money. bet you that the shipping is not $60. Also, the first anime based on a Hollywood movie actually gets a specific release date, and that is Speed Racer. Some people wrote in thinking that they'd caught us on this, 
saying, oh, but there's been English language live action adaptations of anime before. And while that's true... Have any of those been released theatrically? Through the Hollywood distribution channels, like the live action Fist of the North Star with Gary Daniels in it. Yeah. Or a lot of that other filth. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, no, I like the Crying Freeman movie, but again, that wasn't released here in America. Even though it was pretty big in France, they have the really nice three-disc set of that. There was also things like... Giver. Yeah, the Giver movies, which I enjoyed, even though they're extremely silly. The second one, from what I understand, was released direct-to-video. The first one, I actually don't know. I think they were both direct-to-video, or maybe the first Giver movie, the one that had Mark Hamill as the villain or whatever, that might have been made for TV, even though it was rated R, I'm pretty sure. But... There was never theaters that you'd go to to see The Giver. None that I can think of. Nothing has been released through the regular Hollywood channels that I think we're familiar with. That's the first thing that's done by the Wachowskis, isn't it? Speed Racer. I don't know. Let's play an R5 Central promo and find out. <laughs> well, let's not do that. But yes, it is made by yes. the Wachowskis, supposedly. Yeah, so first to be released in theaters, we'll see. Also, another story from Japan... This is also somewhat unique in that apparently there's a, this uh, circle that made these Doraemon doujinshi. A circle, of course, for those of you who didn't watch Otaku no Video, is a fan group. Right. All it is is just a group of fans. If you didn't watch Otaku no Video, you should be Go listening and watch it to now. show number 21. Yes. Or whichever yes. episode it was that we reviewed Otaku no Video. I think it might have been 24 or 25. Just look in the review index. <laughs> you could also watch Genshin. True. Anyway, I have no idea about the content of or this. Or possibly I... Comic Party. No, don't watch Comic Party. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, apparently this was a very, very popular doujinshi. Just side stories of Doraemon. And Doraemon is extremely popular. It is literally the Mickey Mouse of Asia. It's like, remember all the fun times we had? You're supposed to be funny? <laughs> oh. <laughs> This doujinshi sold 15,500 copies. For doujinshi, that is a gigantic amount. And apparently this was large enough that it actually caught the eye of the people who own the rights to Doraemon. And now apparently there's going to be some piracy issues dealt with. Well, yeah, I mean, the whole point of doujinshi is like you don't print up 15,000 copies to sell. (laughs) The reason they overlook you is because, oh, you only do a run of a couple hundred, if that. Yeah, the idea is that you're an amateur and you're doing this for the love of the character. And I mean, they might very well be doing that, but I mean, you're not exactly supposed to be able to make a business out of it. Once you get to the point where it's even possible for you to have sold 15,000 copies of your doujinshi, that's better than a lot of actual professionally published things do here in America. Well, it, it also seems that every once in a while, they'll crack down on doujins a little. Like, when Nintendo cracked down on, like, the Pokemon. Yeah, that Pokemon doujinshi was an unusual stuff, case. So. By the way, what we're talking about is there was a Pokemon doujinshi in which Ash raped Pikachu or some nonsense like Isn't that. Isn't that how every single Pokemon doujin is? <laughs> I remember someone who was like, Why is it that all the Pokemon doujin I find is always gay Pokemon doujin? <laughs> I have no idea. All I know is that this is one of the few cases that I know of that someone had charges brought against them. This is one of the other few times as well, but then again, this is a very unusual situation. I mean, when you sell 15,000 copies of a fan-made product... I don't think that's a problem that anyone in the artist alley at any anime con here is going to be worrying about. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The closest thing I can think of is that Finnish Star Trek movie that was like the most watched Finnish movie of the year, which of course means that like... A hundred people saw it. Anyway. Oh, 
Poor Finland. No Finnish people listen to this show. They're too busy LARPing. <laughs> oh, double burn. Actually, no, I think it was Sweden or somewhere it was. My friend went and they're like, like, it's my dream to go and live there because there's so many LARPers down there. <laughs> I did not know that. It was some <laughs> cold European socialist place. <laughs> Probably <laughs> Finland. Actually, no, I am remembering. It was, in fact, Sweden, because the discovery was that, you know what? In Sweden, Swedish fish is just called fish candy. <laughs> and they love LARPing. So there, yes, Sweden. I'm sorry, Finland. Didn't want to paint you in a bad light. <laughs> Another interesting bit of news is also coming from Anime News Service. Apparently, the number is out, and we were actually talking about this before, and this is actually now official. This is was in the Nikkei BP Anime Business Forum. It's around $20,000 an episode on average to license anime. Apparently they say that some of the most popular anime properties have fetched $80,000 an episode. Hmm. So it is a very wide range. Apparently back in the late 90s, the short thing says that Pokemon fetched $40,000 an episode. And this is a big deal because a while ago in 1995 and before, you could get TV shows for a couple of grand an episode. And apparently the big thing was Evangelion. I don't know how much ADV paid for it, but apparently ADV set the standard. And everything since then has been now been just going up and up and up and up. The effect of it is actually kind of good and kind of bad. On the one hand, we're not getting just 50 releases of every single thing every single month or whatever. Like we were in 1995. Right. And as we were... <laughs> yeah. Like we were in 1995, all those things coming out. Just, you couldn't even keep track of it. It's like, wow, I can get Evangelion Volume 2 or Slayers Volume 80. And MD Geist Part 2. Yeah. And that's it. But no, it's like, on the other hand, a lot of things that might potentially be popular don't get picked up at all. They kind of are only mm -hmm. going for the surest of sure bets mm -hmm. if it gets too expensive. I've heard that some shows out there, like, I think it might have been Shin Getter Robo. I think I said New Getter Robo was New something Robo? like that really high price because the yeah. Japanese overestimate the value of their own cartoons way too much. And right. they think, oh, Getter Robo, 30 years worth of Getter Robo. This is huge. This is incredibly popular, especially internationally where it shows on Spanish TV or in, mm -hmm. say, the Philippines or wherever. Sure, we'll charge you $70,000 an episode, even though nobody cares about giant robots really and, and the problem with that is that these companies might go for that and then they get burned and then you right. don't see stuff like that very often right. also this is kind of from the rumor mill more than anything else but tokyo pop has apparently picked up some of the gutsoon manga titles actually a single gutsoon manga title and for those of you who don't know gutsoon was a company that was formed to put out raijin comics raijin was well it was an interesting idea, and maybe we'll talk about it in detail, but it was an attempt at a weekly manga anthology, and it failed pretty badly. Well, yeah, the problem is you do a weekly anthology here in the United States, it ends up costing a ridiculous amount of money to subscribe to it. Right. It's and not as cheap as it is in Japan, which means it doesn't work. The other problem was just that they didn't have any super killer app popular yeah. title to sell everyone on the way when Shonen Jump launched. They had Naruto and DBC. Mm -hmm. Right. And and all they that had jazz. really good things. and They, they had, had really good things. They, they had, had super really killer known. things if it were in Japan. Yeah. Right, but right. Like Slam Dunk. City Hunter, Fist of the North Star, yeah. Slam Dunk. Well, Fist of the Blue Sky, but yeah. I, I was actually very sad to see it go, but as Daryl mentioned there, 
there were some really good things in that. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, Slam Dunk the manga has been picked up by someone. I don't know okay. if this is the title that they're talking about, though. I know that I was looking forward to seeing more City Hunter manga. I don't know yeah. if that's the title. There were some really good things that they did. Uh, one of them that I'm blanking on the name... Revenge of Mouflon. Mouflon. Revenge of Mouflon was interesting, as well as uh, First American President. First President of Japan. Japan. First President of Japan. But I'm at least that got released to completion. Yes, that did. So, this is something that I'm just more interested in seeing what this title might be. I'm thinking Slam Dunk just because, mm. much as I'm entertained by Cine Hunter, the artwork does look its age. Slam Dunk... It Gorgeously look, drawn. Yeah, it looks very yeah. good. People who liked Vagabond, mm -hmm. it's drawn by very the same guy. Different. Very, very different, different show. I don't. I like Vagabond. I don't really like Slam Dunk very much. But Slam Dunk is immensely popular all over the world. It was yeah. one of their most popular titles when it was running in Raijin Comics. Mm -hmm. Do you think sports manga and anime are picking up enough here that it'll sell though? Because I know I it used to always know. be the case that people over here. The manga audience wasn't really into sports manga, and that I didn't think really do well. Maybe Slam Dunk might do okay for the reason that Hikaru no Go is probably going to do okay. The guys are pretty good looking, and people will go for that. Maybe I Shield 21 might be popular because it's about football, and football <laughs> is pretty popular here, and it has pretty decent art. Among anime fans, who knows? It has to break out beyond anime fans for it. Yeah. But also, you have to at least well, get yeah, the anime but... fans while you're there. Right, mm -hmm. right. Tajime no Ippo, much as I love it, didn't really catch much ground because the artwork is kind of rough, even though it's not mm. Grappler Baki level <laughs> in terms of <laughs> yeah. looking rough. People didn't go for that. They looked at it, they said, oh, this is about boxing. I'm not interested in boxing. I'm not going to buy this. Right, right. Yeah, Whereas people who are buying Hikaru no Go, it's not like anyone who got into Hikaru no Go at first really was like, oh, wow, Go. Go is something I love <laughs> deeply yeah. and intensely. I'm going to watch this anime. No, it's more like, Go, what the hell is Go? I've never heard of this. Yeah. It looks look kind of cool. Let me look at it. Oh, this is neat. I think Hikaru no Go got a boost because it was in Shonen Jump. So people were buying Shonen Jump for Naruto and One Piece and the other stuff, and then they were like, oh, what's this Hikaru no Go thing? And they checked it out. But Slam Dunk... If they don't have that, I don't know. We'll see. And just as a side note, I usually use Hajime no Ippo as the perfect example of a show that requires no love or no knowledge of the thing it's about for you to enjoy it. Right. You don't have to love boxing at all, and this is still a fantastic well, show. Well, I think almost any sports anime or manga. Pretty much. The sport is usually irrelevant. Sometimes. Sometimes there's things that... I don't count driving your car down a hill as a sport. So Initial <laughs> D is not sports anime. <laughs> Maybe the only things I could think of is, like, maybe the Mahjong shows are confusing if you don't know about Mahjong. Apparently, according to even a monkey can draw manga, once it starts getting <laughs> into Mahjong, they just make shit up. Oh. It doesn't even matter if you know the rules of Mahjong. But from what I've heard and from what I've read, the craziest people are the Pachinko manga fans. Because the oh. Pachinko manga fans get insane when they oh, find yeah, out that yeah. one of their artists has been tracing Pachinko machines. Nobody here How knows what Pachinko is anyway. It's not like Pachinko's a sport. How do you even get a manga out of Pachinko? It's like balls falling There's an anthology of it. Yeah, there's multiple anthologies. What is the <laughs> it's drama entire in genre. Pachinko? Like, you don't even do anything. You just, what, pull a lever and watch balls fall down the thing. There's multiple anthologies about golf manga. So. Well, golf at least has some skill golf, to it. you swing a club. You Maybe Pachinko 
go, there's some skill. It's like, have to time it. Know exactly when to hit the button to let the balls in. <laughs> it's Repeat. like slot machines. You don't do anything. You just For hundreds of pages. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't get that. It's like from the perspective of the pachinko makers or something. It's a very <laughs> Japanese thing, and that's why I don't think we'll really be seeing a whole lot of pachinko yeah. comic <laughs> books. No, probably out. not. Probably not. <laughs> I'm waiting for a curling manga. I'm waiting I on that one. I think you do some damage with a curling manga. Yeah, oh. I think that'd be, the f that'd be phenomenal. <laughs> so, come on, uh, Japan. You know you want to do it. Just watch <laughs> Men with Brooms a few times. It's from Canada. Nobody watches Canadian stuff. Now, oh, Finland and Canada. So, this is just something that's going out. Maybe some good fan subbers will pick this up, but the Gona Guy Chibi World OAV is getting a remaster. <laughs> Sorry. And was that what they showed at Otakon's? I can't believe you haven't seen that. Actually, it's I can't believe you haven't seen this because our <laughs> ripoff version is I can't believe you haven't seen that. That, exactly. Right, right. It's a totally different thing. I don't know uh, because. I can't help but notice that the new Giant Robo anime has started, and nobody's fans of that at all. I'm just hoping also because, you know, it's Gona Guy themed, and we do happen to have a uh, Gona Guy uh, work in the show, but these were uh, pretty weird and fun little shorts, in the same vein as the SD Gundam ones were. Panda Z. Yes. That's the closest analogy, because Panda Z is the sort of SD version of Mazinger Z, yeah. kinda. Right. right. Anyway, that's getting a release. Maybe it'll get Digisub because, like hell, that'll ever get released. <laughs> yeah. Also, this is kind of coming from the rumor mill, I told you there was a lot of news this week, that Discotech is going to be releasing one of my favorite Lupin movies, The Fuma Conspiracy. I had heard for a long time that they were going to release Fuma Conspiracy and Legend of the Gold of Babylon. And Mobile, Gold of Babylon, right. Even though Legend of the Gold of Babylon is terrible, but <laughs> I think... It's something that I'd have to buy just because it's so terrible now, even though I didn't buy it when Animego released it, because both Fuma Conspiracy and Legend of Gold of Babylon, the rights to those used to be held by Animego. Yes, they used to be released as Rupon. Yeah, Rupon the third, because the estate of Maurice LeBlanc had requested, oh, don't use that. But since that time, the 75 years or whatever have expired, and so you can call Lupon Lupon. Yes. Here. The thing about Discotech is that they vanished off the face of the earth after releasing Tyler the Dragon Boy. Yeah. They've been releasing live-action stuff. Live-action stuff? I haven't even seen those. Yeah, they've been releasing things here and there. Again, this is coming from the rumor mill, but it seems pretty reasonable. So. Yeah, I, I always heard that was more of a when, not if kind of thing, and I figured, mm -hmm. oh, it's been a really long time since we heard anything from Discotech. Maybe they went under, because let's face it, I'm pretty willing to bet that nobody bought Animal Treasure Island, and then nobody <laughs> bought Tara the Dragon Boy, and then nobody Shame bought Puss in Boots. Shame on you. Anyway, I hope that we'll see these, because I really love the Fuma Conspiracy, even though I already own it on DVD. That was one of my favorites. It's the most 80s Lupin that I can think of, complete with leg warmers and the whole get-up. This comes from the really great marketing part of the uh, podcast. There's a, a very cute little bear character called, and I'm gonna rip this name apart, Rilakuma. R-I-L-A-K-K-U-M-A. Clarissa, how do you pronounce that? Rilakuma? Yeah, that sounds good. I guess. I'll, I'll go with that. And it's this really cute bear, and it's really popular among women. And this bear is owned by this office lady and all that. And then Shonen Bat shows up and starts just blocking <laughs> people. <laughs> oh, it's so much worse. Because it's a brilliant idea, and they're going to be releasing 
Lilakuma themed condoms. Well, they've already Don't got Sanrio condoms. Everything condoms in Pretty Japan, much. like the Gundam condom. Yeah, didn't they the release, best is the Gogo, the Gogo 13, 13 condom. condom. No, no, no! Didn't they release like ring condoms from like the horror movie? I don't know why anybody would want to buy that and put that on their penis, but I thought that was a rumor. I never saw any pictures of that. The Gogo 13 condoms exist. They do exist. I've but seen pictures of but those. But didn't um. Jonathan Ross, the Japanorama oh. guy. Yeah, didn't oh. he mention the ring condoms? I think you might be right. One of the episodes, yeah. So. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a terrible idea too. Yeah, why would but you apparently... do that? Well, well I mean, what t- better way to guarantee safe sex than to <laughs> be like, all right, before I put it in, you see the ring. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Let's make a uh. promo out of that, even though it has nothing to do with our show. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even discussed a whole lot of this stuff, but I mean, already we're running very long for the news. I guess we'll just leave it at that. Anime Pacific. Introducing Dane, a 26-year-old Australian expat living in Hong Kong. I'd say anime was the best thing to come out of the 20th century. Introducing Alex, a 30-year-old Canadian expat living in Japan. Anime's alright. I think I grew out of it a few years ago. Dane wrote me into doing this stupid podcast. Anime Pacific, where a hardcore fan tries to bring a lost sheep back into the light. You're living the dream! How can you be living in Japan and not be wallowing in the world of anime? That's ridiculous. If I was living in Germany, would you be asking, why aren't you wallowing in Lederhosen? Anime Pacific, featuring the master of comedy, Alexander Sorokapuk. Dane is gay. Anime Pacific, Life in Asia, Anime News, Reviews, and the Anime Person of the Week. Check us out at animepacific.blogspot.com or subscribe to us through audio or podcast pixel. Anime Pacific, still working out the kinks. Um, I'm gonna have There's a... There's like a vacuum cleaner going off in the background. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? I'm recording and you're drying your hair. (laughs) On this podcast, I've talked quite extensively on the subject of Gekiga in previous episodes, such as during my review of The Pushman and other stories along with The Man in the Olden Tokyo. That was a few episodes back in show 45. I've also talked about a few of the prominent Gekiga authors, such as Yoshihiro Tatsumi and Kazuo Koike, especially Koike, I guess his name and the stuff he writes, comes up a lot as a running gag around here. I've said it before, but the term Gekiga is relatively unknown to American fans, so just so I don't repeat myself throughout this, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say Gekiga, don't worry about it. Just check out show number 45 for a somewhat more in-depth explanation. Anyway, this comic I'm about to review is from Dark Horse Comics, which is mainly an American comic book publisher, but despite the fact that they don't release an extremely high volume of titles... I look around in my manga collection and it seems like a large portion of the actual manga purchases I make are things released by Dark Horse. I think that's because they're kind of the go-to source for getting the Kazuo Koike manga. Yeah. Most of that stuff consists of period pieces he did with an artist named Goseki Kojima. 
That's stuff like Lone Wolf and Cub, Samurai Executioner, Path of the Assassin. He's done other things with other artists, but those ones I just mentioned are essentially all stories about samurai that were written decades ago, usually in the 70s, if not earlier. And so between that stuff, along with Blade of the Immortal, people who are into samurai stories probably know all about Dark Horse comics. But it's not like Kazuo Koike is the only guy who writes samurai manga. Viz released Roroni Kenshin. They also released Vagabond. And both of those are good, but they're not really the same. I'd say they're more of a shonen kind of appeal to those. Vagabond is in a magazine for like 20 and 30-somethings. It's also a lot newer as far as when it was made. Especially Kenshin is a much more recent work. The target audience for Kenshin is a little younger. When I say a little younger, I mean 14-year-olds. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm just trying to say, if you like Lone Wolf and Cub, you might not like Rurouni Kenshin very much, even though they're both samurai stories. So what Dark Horse has decided to do is to release a new Gekiga-style samurai manga in America, and its name is Satsuma Gishiden, The Legend of the Satsuma Samurai. It's a six-part release. It was written in, like, 1977 or something like that, so maybe it's probably more technically correct to call it seinen. The author is a guy named Hiroshi Hirata. He's pretty much completely unknown here in America, and that's because this is his first English-language manga title to be released here in about 25 years. Unfortunately, I don't know which of his works was released in English in 1981, but it's not like there was a whole lot of English-translated Japanese comics to choose from back then. I only know that it's his first manga to be brought over in 25 years because of the blurb on the back cover. And the blurb on the back is actually sort of interesting. They don't mention the first work that was brought over? They don't. Hmm. From reading it, it's pretty clear that Dark Horse's intent is for all the Lone Wolf and Cub fans to give this one a shot. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not really quite the same thing as what they're used to. The actual write-up on the back, it actually uses the word Gekiga on it. Which is kind of interesting, because when I was talking about it in show 45... I said the reason that the word is so unknown to American fans is because it's by and large not a commercially marketed term, the way other classifications like shonen, shoujo, hentai, yaoi, and that sort of thing are. Mm -hmm. There is one manga video caliber screw-up on this blurb, and that's the part where it says, the book is presented in the authentic left-to-right format to preserve the art. (laughs) The book is actually, in fact, Hmm. printed in its original format from right to left. So it's unflipped. (laughs) But if you read the back, it would have you think that it was flipped or that it was originally supposed to be from left to right. And then you look at the book and it's from right to left. That's kind of weird, but I like that it's unflipped because Lone Wolf and Cub and Samurai Executioner were flipped. And I think it wasn't until probably around Lady Snowblood or Path of the Assassin that they started not flipping these samurai manga. So despite what the back cover implies, that is the case here as well. Anyway, back to Hiroshi Hirata. I don't really know a whole lot about him. I haven't read anything of his other than this. Finding English language information on him is actually kind of tough. But as best as I can tell, he was another really important Gekiga author who came up from that lending library system like the other folks I mentioned. But even though people haven't really had the chance to read his manga until now, I think a large amount of American anime fans have at least seen something that he's done, because Hiroshi Hirata is a master of traditional Japanese calligraphy, and since he was a really big influence on Katsuhiro Otomo, Otomo actually commissioned Hirata to do the kanji calligraphy for Akira, 
So most of the people who've seen Akira have at least seen something by this guy because it's that red kanji characters spelling out Akira mm-hmm. that are on the cover of the recent re-releases. And if you've seen the movie, you saw the part where they're painting it on the roof. That's his calligraphy. Mm. I guess there are a lot of new anime fans who've never even seen Akira. Hard to believe as it is. Yeah. So the fact that Hiroshi Hirata is an expert at Japanese calligraphy meant that Dark Horse actually had to localize this manga in a different way from how we're used to seeing manga get translated. In a nutshell, for all the instances where he has calligraphy, either through character dialogue or through something in the background, they leave the kanji calligraphy intact. So if the calligraphy happens as part of something that someone's saying in a text bubble, usually when someone is shouting something really loudly, which in this manga is fairly often... (laughs) then they have the translated part of the calligraphy in bold English text, but they leave the actual kanji in the text bubble as well. Mm. Other times, they just overlay a translation of what was being said onto another portion of the art via a small sort of text bubble. So, yes, to have that additional translation is covering up a portion of the artwork, but I guess the rationale here is that if they got rid of the calligraphy entirely, that would be removing far, far, far more of the artwork because it's usually a very focal point of the panel. In fact, there's one page in Volume 1, which I've got in front of me here, where the entire page is a text that's written in calligraphy. So they just left the whole thing as is and put the translation for that page in the appendix in the back. As for the rest of the artwork, I guess it's very, very detailed, but at the same time, it's a lot different from what the Lone Wolf and Cub art looks like. It's not to say that Goseki Kojima's art wasn't complex or detailed or anything but you can definitely see the difference in approach when it comes to Hirata's art style maybe it's just his paneling and his layouts it's kind of hard to explain it's a lot more kinetic I think when you think of the lone wolf and cub art a lot of it is somewhat sparse at times a bit stiffer I thought yeah stiffer is probably a good way to explain it I wouldn't say it was bad no it's not bad at all it's just different I would Yeah, it's really hard to explain unless you actually look at it. But as for what Satsuma Gishiden is about, it's actually kind of hard to explain, because as far as I can tell, there's no main character to the story at all. It's just a bunch of different, yet mostly interconnected stories. And effectively, these stories are all about the Satsuma region of Japan around the year 800 AD or something like that. And if you don't know about Satsuma, they were kind of renowned for having really powerful warriors there and so people would be raised from birth in the arts of war like oh how to fire a bow and arrow or how to use a sword and that sorts of things and they have to follow the samurai code pretty much that was their life the problem with this is that if you're brought up your entire life to wage war what do you do when there's no war you start losing your mind basically because there's nothing for you to do that's what you're trained in So they end up having to do other things. It ends up going into a class struggle between the higher class samurai and the lower class samurai. And how, since there was no war, people would have to take menial jobs that ordinarily peasants would do. And this would cause a lot of unrest and tension. So people just started resenting their lives. And so they'd start looking for outlets to get rid of all this pent-up anger and frustration. And on top of that, talking about pent-up frustration, part of the whole samurai code, as was dictated to these guys, was that they were basically completely and utterly terrified of women. 
this isn't really a women getting raped kind of manga because the way they're taught, if the samurai were walking past a woman, they'd run to the other side of the street and like cover their head and say something to themselves and then wash themselves like 10 times in case something from the woman got on them (laughs) because they were just absolutely horrified of women. But despite that, they were still people. They just deny like, oh, you guys are all masturbating in secret, but you don't want to admit it. (laughs) Because what effectively happens in each of these short little stories is that they're doing some sort of bizarre practice. And maybe one guy disapproves of the practice and gives everyone this really big rousing speech saying how stupid everyone is. And then a lot of shit goes down as a result. Mm. For example, Mm. the very first story really illustrates within the first maybe 20 or 30 pages, how different it is from Lone Wolf and Cub or the rest of them. Because what they're doing at the beginning is that a lot of the samurai are engaging in this training exercise because there's no war. So they need to find something to do. And so what they do is they get convicted criminals and release them on horseback against an army of samurai. And what happens is it's a game. The game is whoever can secure the liver of the convict wins. Oh, God. And so, basically what happens is, the guy is immediately killed, and then it turns into this absolutely chaotic psycho rugby polo, where they're just (laughs) mutilating this guy's corpse and, like, fighting over it, and it just gets completely and progressively just ripped apart so that it's just a hunk of meat, eventually. That's awful. And it, it just keeps going. The amount of fighting that these guys are getting into over getting the body and It's like, oh, one guy's got the body, and oh, someone's going to take it. Well, I'll trick you because I'm going to rip it in half and then throw the other half that's useless to you because it's not the liver part at you to slow you down. And it just keeps going like that for a while, and eventually somebody wins, and then they just throw that one in the pile with the other five. And so how graphic is the art for these scenes? Like, is it really detailed internal organs? Not really. It's mostly just, like, all black or something like that. Mm. Very much like how the Lone Wolf and Cub stuff is. It's not really a Mad Bull style (laughs) (laughs) organs and gore. It's not like Geno Cyber. No, not not really, but it's definitely... Since it's all solid black, your brain just fills in the rest, and and a lot of times that's even more effective than actually drawing everything out. It's about as violent as Lone Wolf and Cub and that sort of thing is, but at the end of that story I just talked about, there's one convict who says, hey, this practice is idiotic, you guys are just doing this because you just hate your lives a lot, and then... He gets into a one-on-one duel with somebody else, and because the samurai give their word, it has to be a one-on-one duel, and they're saying, oh, you shouldn't do that because he's a lower-class samurai, and then it goes into an extensive backstory on the differences between the lower samurai and the higher caste ones. It's a lot of class struggle, a lot of things Mm. about society, and I think you don't really get that element or that angle of society from Lone Wolf and Cub or Samurai Executioner, which are much more personal stories Lone Wolf and Cub is pretty much primarily about Ogami Ito, mm-hmm. whereas this is about the entire society, from the peasants to the different levels and how people are being used politically. And that's a big difference between this and other works. And so a lot of people might find it kind of, I guess, dry, because it's not really nonstop 
fighting from chapter to chapter. There are a lot of parts where someone will just arbitrarily cut somebody down for besmirching their honor or whatever it is that weird samurai do because they're out of their mind. But as a rule, it's not really sword fight after sword fight after sword fight. Mm -hmm. It is a lot of the samurai had to do anything involving making a craft. Like, this guy's a coffin maker. This guy, his job is to make reeds and pipes or bowls or something like that. Again, since there's no real central character, as far as I can tell from the first volume, people might be put off from it because of that. The thing about this that's kind of interesting to me there's a lot of instances where you kind of look at it and you wonder what was going through Hiroshi Hirata's head. Because a lot of these times when people are being really mad and frustrated and stuff, almost inevitably they're in a loincloth. <laughs> sometimes it's because they're peasants, sometimes it's because they're in some sort of situation, but a lot of this comic is big, rugged, manly men in loincloths screaming <laughs> about things. And it's kind of silly... Especially when you think about how this is a comic, well, not this comic in particular, but the works of Hiroshi Hirata are by and large approved of by this running joke among people on Death's Oktoberfest, a guy by the name of Yukio Mishima. <laughs> Yukio Mishima, for those who don't know, was, I guess he was a playwright or something like that. He was an author in Japan, and he's basically known because... He tried to take over the government, failed, and committed seppuku. His life basically resonates with the story of Satsuma Gishiden because it's pretty much known that Yukio Mishima was gay. Even though he had a wife and he had kids, most people will agree, okay, Yukio Mishima, he was gay and he resented that because he grew up in Japan in the mid-1900s. I guess he did write a story about a guy who was gay who had to hide behind some sort of illusion in order to fit into society. And that was one of the first things he wrote, I think. But Yukio Mishima, basically, he was always about encompassing the spirit of the samurai and upholding the spirit of the emperor. And after World War II, he was really, really mad at the emperor for renouncing his divinity. And he was really anti-foreigner, right? Yeah, he was yeah. all sorts of things like that. And so... At one point, him and like four of his friends or something like that, they went to a military base headquarters to try mm -hmm. and stage a coup. Basically, they got the leader of the place tied up and then he walked out to address the soldiers, give his big rousing speech. But instead of like an anime where you give a big rousing speech and everyone's behind you, everyone just laughed their ass off at him. And so he just committed ritual suicide. This guy, Ed Hill, who's one of the guys who's always at AWA, kind of wouldn't exist without him. He wrote a little fanzine comic called Fairy Princess Yukio Mishima, which was about, hmm. what if Yukio Mishima was a magical girl? And the whole thing is like him dressed up like Minky Momo, talking about how great it is to kill yourself, and apparently I have a copy of this, but when they showed it to someone from Japan, that floored even them, and someone who was used to going to comic and seeing all sorts of bizarre things. Wow. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> and so, Yukio Mishimo mainly, the reason I brought him up is because I guess a lot of elements of his character are kind of brought over to, believe it or not, Leiji Matsumoto's work, like Captain mm. Harlock. Not necessarily the gay part so much as the standing <laughs> up against society and believing in the principle of something, even though the government 
has renounced everything. Right. And Satsuma Gishiden has a lot of those themes as well. Like being true to the spirit of the samurai code, even though your higher ups have sent you some sort of order that to obey this order would be to go against everything I believe. But it's an order from higher up and feudalism was built entirely around that. And so a lot of it is just a lot of bizarre, chaotic things like that. And I think people should check this out because it's already kind of hard to find. I couldn't even find volume one of this. I had to write Carl Horn and say, hey, I want to review this. Send me a copy. And he said, all right, fine. And so I got volume one. Volume two of this is out. I can't find volume two. I've not seen this on the shelves anywhere. Yeah, you can't really find it. It's something that it is shrink-wrapped. It has the parental advisory explicit content sticker on it. It's one of those things where... But you can order it online, right? Yeah, of course you can order it online. It's not really that difficult. It's not like a lot of of out-of-print or hard-to-find Viz titles. You just can't find it in stores. Right. Okay. And I think, for me anyway, even though I order DVDs online like it's no problem, manga for me... It's kind of harder for me to accept ordering that online. Maybe, Usually you don't get as good a discount when you order online with manga. Since yeah, I think that's the reason. Is because you don't really save a whole lot of money by doing it online. Right. Especially the shipping for books yes. is more than the shipping for DVDs. You don't usually come out ahead. And so yeah. a lot of times... Unless you order enough to get like free shipping from Amazon or something. Then. Yeah, and that's... Yeah. you know I usually don't buy $50 worth of manga at a time. Most people don't. The volumes of Satsuma Gishiden are $15 each, which is a little more than usual. Well, apparently they're a little over $10 on Amazon. I'm looking at it right now. So, so you'll save a little bit of money hmm. that way. The books themselves, I would say they're on a higher quality paper than your standard Tokyo Pop release. Mm. It's roughly the same height as the Tokyo Pop release. The pages are a minuscule amount wider, but as far as page count goes, I would say that this first volume of Satsuma Gishiden is almost twice the size of a typical Tokyo Pop volume. Like Welcome to the NHK is about 170 some pages, and Satsuma Gishiden volume one anyway is 260. So you get about an extra 100 pages worth for this release. So I think that's a good deal. Even though $15, usually people look at that and say, oh, that's kind of high. This is going to be one of those things that usually when I do a manga review, I review the entire series. But like we were just saying, it's already kind of hard to find. So I think people need to discover this thing now while they actually have a chance to find it. Because otherwise, you're just going to be killing yourself trying to track it down. I get a lot of emails from people saying they want to read Phoenix, but they can't read Phoenix because Volume 1 is out of print. Mm. Even though you don't need to read Volume 1 to read the remaining volumes, a lot of people like to start from the beginning anyway. Overall, I'd say if you liked Lone Wolf and Cub, if you liked samurai stories in general, maybe you like samurai movies like Akira Kurosawa films or Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, I think you will definitely enjoy Satsuma Gishiden, Dark Horse they made a pretty good choice by deciding, all right, from Koike and that sort of thing to this, mm-hmm. even though the Koike stuff is usually completely absurd in my viewpoint because <laughs> there's always some sort of bizarre perversion going on. Satsuma Gishinen certainly has a bizarre perversion, but it's just on the opposite side of the scale. It's not like there's going to be raping and people peeing on each other <laughs> in Satsuma Gishinen. Mm-hmm. There is, however, people going crazy and 
saying like, I'm not listening to you anymore, mom. I'm going to take my dad and I'm going to make a coffin and we're going to carry him around. And <laughs> because he doesn't deserve any better. Because he believed so much in the class system that he wouldn't let me marry a girl from a lower class. <laughs> so screw him. <laughs> I'm definitely interested to see how this plays out. I wish I knew more about Hiroshi Hirata's writing so I could recommend some other stuff he's done. Mm. But hopefully this will catch on. And then more people will know about the word Gekiga because that's what this is being marketed as, even though it's written from 77 or so. So Yukio Mishima was dead for about seven years. Mm-hmm. Committed seppuku by then. <laughs> and then, with any luck, we'll start getting some more stuff like this. So, see if you can find it. If you can't find it, write in, let me know, and I'll read about your complaints and woes about not being able to find it. But hopefully you'll have better luck than me. I want a copy of that fanzine. Hello, I am the Popcorn Samurai, and I would be honored if you would listen to my podcast, where we practice the ancient art of watching samurai movies. Each week we will discuss a different samurai movie title, visit the world of Zatoichi, and you'll participate as well when you send us your thoughts on MP3. All you have to do is visit my website, popcornsamurai.com to see what movie we're going to watch this week, then make a three-minute MP3 and tell us what you think. Did you say you were going to do these dishes? Oh, yeah, baby. I, I forgot. I'm recording my podcast right now. You can do that later. Come on. The kitchen is a mess. There's popcorn bowls everywhere. What is that? Uh, I have to do the dishes right now. Uh, go to popcornsamurai.com for all the details. I'll see you there. After you do the dishes. Yeah, after I do the dishes. when you read a work or watch a movie that so totally dismisses all reasonable science that you can't even really begin to complain about it. Not something on, say, the level of Mazenkaiser, which, as you know, the science on that is just slightly ahead of today's technology, and I'm sure we'll be piloting robots like that in two or three years. Oh, yes. I have mine on reserve already. Exactly. But the type of show that has actual scientists in it and puts the science up on display but you just can't possibly take it seriously. It's kind of in the same vein as maybe Gunbuster from Gainax. Where all the science is just deliberately wrong. And the thing is with Gunbuster, though, they mix it up because they put real science in with the fake stuff. What, you mean there's no ether field out in space? (laughs) It's funny you should mention ether. Anyway, that's probably what you'll be thinking when you watch the show Spirit of Wonder. Spirit of Wonder is an OAV series and a manga by Kenji Tsuruta. This manga actually may still be running. I'm actually not too sure. The artist, Kenji Tsuruta, is said to be very weird and eccentric. And he produces work very, very slowly and very irregularly because he absolutely refuses to have any assistance. The manga itself 
has been around at least since the early 90s and has been serialized in the manga anthology Morning, which is an anthology for men in their 20s and 30s and has such titles as Gen, Silent Service, Vagabond, Devilman Lady, Planetess, and What's Michael. Spirit of Wonder itself is very much an escapist work. It's a show that is set on this island called Prince of Wales Island. There's actually two real Prince of Wales islands out there that I can find. One is off the coast of Australia, and one is in some barren region of Alaska. Although I'm pretty sure that the Prince of Wales Island that's in this show is some sort of fake island in the British Isles. But this actually becomes even less clear as the show goes on, because I'm pretty sure in later OAVs that the show actually takes place in Bristol. But this might actually give you a better idea of this author's approach and just how eccentric he actually is. There's actually two separate series going on in Spirit of Wonder that both take place on this island and in this area. One is from the very first video that I'll be talking about, and that is the story of Miss China. Specifically, it's called Spirit of Wonder, Miss China's Ring. Miss China, and that's not her real name, is a young lady who runs this Chinese restaurant called Tenkai, where she has this lodger named Mr. Breckenridge, who happens to be an inventor, and who is constantly not paying his rent, forcing Miss China to kick down his door all the time. Mr. Breckenridge! Henji o shinasai! And is constantly inventing very strange things with the help of his young assistant, Jim. In this story in particular, Dr. Breckenridge has invented this means that he believes will allow him to travel to the moon. This series takes place around like the 1950s, so the style and the technology are all meant to reflect that. Is he going to go to the moon in a giant bullet that he's going to... Well, according to the Anime Go liner notes, remember, they said that the honorable anime ladies and honorable sensitive anime gentlemen will find that the story is on a par with Hollywood and Cher's Moonstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I miss the days of liner notes. Oh, so do I. Yes. To give you an idea of this technology, how do I explain it? Well, basically, he means to get to the moon by transplanting the moon virtually to Earth. So he's got this big machine and he powers up this machine and then the entire surrounding area is basically turned into the moon. It's not going to, like, destroy the planet or anything due to tidal flooding or <laughs> anything like that, but... Yeah, it, the, the technology is just so out there and basically that's sort of the story of Miss China and a lot of it centers around her relationship with Jim. Also of note is that this town they live in is this, you know, seaside town, very idyllic and all that. And if you want to get any really hard-to-find, extremely high-tech science equipment, uh, you have to go to the flower lady, because she sells all of it. Anyway, another story that sort of takes place in this world is called the Scientific Boys Club. And this is about a small club of men, uh, Cooper, Gordon, and Shepard, who are all at least 60, and also Gordon's son-in-law, Jack. And these guys have always dreamed of going to Mars. Ever since this one scientist, Percival Lowell, who is actually a real person, discovered, or thinks he discovered, these canals on Mars, and thinks that these actually contained life. Anyway, this group of scientists basically dream of going to Mars, but they just can't do it because they don't really have the brain power. And all of this brain power 
is hopefully provided by Gordon's daughter, who happens to be Jack's wife, Wendy. Maybe they were going to try to call her Wendy, and he just slipped up a letter and called her Wendy instead. I don't know. Anyway, Wendy is this extremely quiet lady, and she wrote this unusual book that hypothesized the idea of ether currents in space. And this became the basis for how these groups of old men think that they can go to Mars. And Wendy is basically this mathematical genius, and she teaches at a local university and has like a doctorate and everything. But she doesn't really have any interest in going to Mars. Basically, it's Jack's job in order to convince her to work on this project so they can actually get to Mars. Essentially, it feels like sci-fi stories as if they were written like 150 years ago or something like that. <laughs> Very <laughs> much so, they're actually. extrapolating on things that people think then yes. and then just going with, yeah, that's real. Yeah. All right, let's go. It very much has that sort of feeling about it. Along with the Scientific Boys Club, there's actually two other Miss China stories. And each one of these Miss China stories gets more and more ridiculous than the previous one. And in culminating in this one Miss China short called The Planet of Miss China, which features China, Breckenridge, and Jim going to Mars, finding a small Chinese village, and Dr. Breckenridge puking out a giant alcohol-powered fire-spitting monster. Um, yeah, a lot of the results on this cartoon are essentially equivalent to that first episode of The Tick or whatever, that third one where they did chair-faced <laughs> Chippendale, yeah. carves his name into the moon, and yes. it just stays there forever. <laughs> Things like that happen in Spirit of Wonder on a regular basis. Yes, and you just have to go with it. If you question it, you're not going to enjoy this. There's also the Spirit of Wonder manga. Well, it's sort of been released over here by Dark Horse, and I say sort of because they compiled about mm, six or so stories together, and it's a very short release, and I'm pretty sure that this is not all that there is of Spirit of Wonder. It was kind of a one-shot thing. It was released in 1998 and is uh, pretty basically out of print. I should mention, though, that if you find this, Kenji Tsuruta's artwork is gorgeous. The guy does not draw in sort of any stereotypical manga style, and his artwork is just very detailed. How would you say his artwork in the manga compares to the art style in the anime? The art style in the first anime is a little bit simpler. In the second anime, it was a little bit closer to his artwork, but his artwork is very sketchy. I guess that they weren't able to capture that entirely, but the characters do very much look like what they look like in the manga. So I would say it's actually a pretty faithful reproduction. I really actually enjoy the Spirit of Wonder series, but in general, and Daryl was hinting at this, there just seems to be this total disregard by the author of pretty much anyone else in the world. It seems like there's these things that happen as a result of a lot of the experiments of Dr. Breckenridge that just destroy things. That if this actually happened, this would kill millions and millions of people. <laughs> But you can't think of it that way. It's not a morbid work. You just have to right, accept it. It's all very the, sweet. Yes. Just kind oh, of. Oh, isn't that whimsical? They blew up a city. All those people are dead. It's so adorable. Like it well, might... no, but the explosion made a smiley face. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> are there smiley face explosions? Well, um, it may as well be. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know if I should go ahead and just spoil the first DVD. The first DVD of this was made in 1992 and was released over here by Animago and is now very out of print. 
You can probably find this relatively easily, though. Yeah, I just have an old VHS tape of it mm-hmm. where they talk about how the actual title of it was, I, I guess you mentioned this just now while I was off getting the tape, but the original title was The Melancholy of Miss China, yeah, but they changed they... it to Miss China's Ring because Apparently more Melancholy sense. has got some sort of sexual connotation. So like, yeah, Think about that, that, Haruhi fans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of it. I guess I don't really know what the connotation is. But in 2001, they suddenly made these other OAVs, and that was the Miss China short, the Scientific Boys Club, which is two parts, and then this other Miss China short. And these were released over here in America in 2004, and it was just released as Spirit of Wonder, although online I think you would see it as Spirit of Wonder, the Scientific Boys Club. And that DVD, I believe, is in print and readily available. Who released that? Was it Media Blasters? That was Bandai. Bandai, all right. Yeah. And so I don't know really how to describe this show because it is a very sort of whimsical show. And it's, it's sort of a light romance. It is. It's mainly all of this... the, the bizarre terrors of science is not the primary focus yes. of the series. Yes, it's certainly a backdrop to the relationships between Wendy and, and her husband Jack and Miss China and Jim. I remember watching it for the first time, and if you don't want to hear a spoiler for the first episode, then just go ahead a minute or two. But the first disc ends with them crushing the moon and creating a <laughs> ring around the Earth. And that's Miss China's ring. And it's Miss China's ring, and it's dedicated they to made Miss it for China. Her. Yes. What the hell? <laughs> it's the most beautiful ring in the whole wide world. <laughs> We've just completely fucked up all tides and everything. <laughs> Billions of people are dead. But Miss China's ring... And she's got a pretty ring in space, so it's A-OK. Yes. Wow. So, <laughs> like I said, you can't think about this as morbid. It's, it's sweet. <laughs> Any girl would appreciate that. So, <laughs> the stuff that happens in the second disc maybe aren't that extreme, but they're right there. This is not exactly a show that's going to light the world on fire, and as far as I know, it's never been very popular. It's just sort of been the show that's just been there, and people that watch generally tend to like it. But I would certainly recommend this. It is, like Daryl said, a light romance. It's been described as hardcore sci-fi. I don't know if I'd go as far as... I don't really think that that the hard (laughs) sci-fi crowd is really down with... No, I don't think so. fields and... Yes, I don't know where they got that advertising idea to call it hard sci-fi. Or for all the Heinlein fans terrible, are going to this one. advertising ideas. Actually, that was the Japanese who called it that, so... Hmm. Well, well see, the Japanese, Japanese take on Heinlein, as we know about. from their Starship <laughs> Troopers anime, leaves <laughs> oh, a lot to be desired. The vagina monsters, yeah. Uh, it's something that I've enjoyed. I would certainly recommend it. I mean, you're going to find the first Animego DVD pretty cheap, probably. If you go to a con and Animego has got a uh, table there, they probably have got some of their old stock of this. Yeah, ordinarily I would say that this is something that maybe you just rant and watch once, but the reality is that if you find it, it'll be really cheap in all likelihood anyway. Yeah. As for the second DVD, that is currently available. I bought this for $10, and I thought it was worth $10. Generally, $10 is usually a good price point at which you can buy about anything on DVD. Ten dollars yeah. and under. Yeah, I buy a lot of dumb things for ten dollars and under because the <laughs> rationale is that, oh well, if I rent it, it's like six dollars or whatever. Well, I mean, my my rationale is, you know, I'm going to spend twelve dollars on dinner, so ten dollars for something that's going to be there forever is not too bad. 
online you find this and it's full price. I don't know if I'd pay full price for it. I would say that it's definitely worth it if you find it cheap. This isn't exactly a very hard sell for this, but it's just such a strange show to watch when you see the result of, you know, crushing the moon and nobody notices either. Yeah, no one particularly minds. Yeah. So if you're in the mood for kind of light romance with insane ideas of technology and the back thought of, you know, having killed millions and millions of people, this is the show for you, I think. <laughs> and if you find the manga, definitely pick that up because the artwork is just beautiful and just worth it for by itself. That's basically my thoughts. I've talked about a robot show since Gerald talked about the other stuff that I've been watching lately, Combatler and Boltis, and I decided to go back and talk about something else that had robots in it. And this time, my decision was a series of OVAs called Mazenkaiser. These OVAs are based off of work by Gonagai, and for those who might not be familiar with Gonagai, or at least don't recognize them offhand by the name, Shame, Shame on you. Shame. Shame. Clearly. Nagai was a really popular, influential manga artist. He started, I think, in like the late 60s, maybe the mid-60s. And he was inspired to become a manga artist, I believe, by Tezuka. Yeah. Wasn't he the protege of Ishinomori? Yeah, he was. Mm. Yeah. In fact, they say if they call Tezuka the god of manga... Mm-hmm. Gonagai, Gonagai is the father. The father. Yeah. So his, his yeah. contributions are vast and enormous. Yeah. Right. Perhaps second Although only his, to Tezuka, arguably. Yeah. Well, his, uh, his approach, approach to the manga was, was just totally opposite, but I guess yes, you can explain that. Yes, it's very different. He's not like Tezuka. Gonagai created some really well-known, influential works. I don't know if anybody would recognize this one, but one of the first things that really put him on the map was he did a manga called Harenchi Gakuen. Shameless and, school. Yeah. What made this really important was that it was the first time that a manga for young readers, like they had Gekigo, but this was the first time that a manga for young readers had really crude sexual comedy and nudity and violence to that sort of extent. And oh, man. It really and pissed a lot of people in the PTA off in Japan. And Shameless school. When did he write it? He wrote it when he was like 16 or something. Yes, right? that's the thing is that it's all he wrote it when he was a teenager. And the thing is, this was burned publicly and it was this massive yeah. thing. And he didn't know he hadn't had sex when he was 16. So all of the sexual stuff that's going on in it is it's all written by a virgin who has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> Yes. Gona Guy's approach was always, I want to write something that I would want to read and that people my age want, <laughs> want to see. And but just imagine, Jack is the result. Just imagine that you're 16 years old and your manga that you do causes that. That must be such a thing when you're 16. But yeah, Gona Guy did other important contributions to the world too. 
Yeah, he stopped derailing created, the conversation. Yeah, other people might recognize some of his other stuff, like uh, he created Cutie Honey. Yes. Um, Devil Man. Yes. And he also did a series called Violence Jack, which is yes. Really violent, post-apocalyptic story, kind of like Fist of the North Star. Preceded Fist like of before, the North Star and even Mad Max and Road Warrior. Yeah. Yes, but yeah. like before Mad Max and Fist of the North Star and Guro in general did anything, Violence Jack did everything. 17 volumes of just insanity. But another area that Godegai is really, really important to is the area of super robots. And the reason for this is that he created two really important robot series, and one of them is actually especially important to talking about Mazenkaiser. He created Mazinger Z, which some people might recognize, probably not, but it was brought over here to the U.S. It was called Transor Z. Yeah, I don't a know really how... good English theme song as sung by a, a <laughs> Japanese guy who didn't speak English. Koji can swim in the sky, he can fly beneath the sea. In his robot man, Mazinger Z. Mazinger is fast and made stronger than his enemies. Deriving from his little pilot, he can protect the peace. From his wrist, he's a fly, launching a rocket paint From his chest, laser fire, fighting with light energy Mazingo, Mazingo, Mazinger Z Yeah, best English ever So I don't know how many people actually saw that I've never actually seen Transor Z, but a few of our older audience members might remember that one. It had very and, weird syndication, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I'm going to talk in a little bit of detail about Mazinger because it's so important to Mazenkaiser. But he also created another series called Getter Robo, which was really well known for being the first combining robot it was the first time that there were like 30 different robot like vehicles and they would combine together to make a giant robot. Mazinger Z was another first as well, wasn't it? Right, right. I'm just going to get to that. Because like I so said, I need to talk about Mazinger in more detail. I've heard some people claim that Mazinger is the first combining because the guy has a plane, like hover vehicle, and it combines with the robot, but... They're pedantic jackasses Getter, who are wrong. Well, Getter Robo is more in the pattern of combining robots that we're familiar with. If you think about, like, Goline, which was dubbed over here as Voltron, or, like, Voltus Time or something. Getter Except Robo take the robots and turn them into Silly Putty and just mash them together. Yeah, Godegai, one of the things that he passed on to the super robot genre was logic, science, what are those? He passed on none of it. We don't need any of that, and that attitude is something that that we can thank Godegai for, whether you uh, think that's a good thing or not, it's all him. And so he really kick-started this big trend in the 70s of super robot shows, and he kind of started everything. And so Mazinger Z was originally a manga by Godegai, and then later in the same year that the manga started, which was 1972, they began making an anime version of it. This anime series actually ran for like 92 episodes, which I believe is the longest running robot show in existence. The show was really popular. It was the first super robot show They'd had robots like Tetsujin 28 and Gigantor before, but Mazinger worked a little differently from those. One of the big differences was that Mazinger was the first giant robot that the hero actually piloted by riding in it. 
all the stuff before, like Gigantor or Giant Robo, like the live action and stuff, it was always like a kid with a remote control who would be standing in a building somewhere off to the side or Mm -hmm. in a field and piloting it like an RC car. But Mazinger, there is a, a little vehicle, like I mentioned earlier, a hover plane that connects to Mazinger Z's head and the pilot actually drives it from in there. And it also introduced the trend of having these really over-the-top weapons and attacks. Mazinger has the rocket punch, which everybody's familiar with, because every robot now has to have some variation of rocket punch where the hand flies off and hits something and comes Even back. Godzilla. <laughs> Yes, if you bought the Jumbo McKinder toys, the Shogun (laughs) Warriors toys, there was a Godzilla one, and what was really funny was that Mazinger did not have a rocket punch. His fist did not come off. No, they didn't. Godzilla had a rocket punch. Like, you could actually fire Godzilla's fist (laughs) off. Made no sense. It's pretty hilarious, though. Mazinger also introduced a few things, like, it had the first female robot, and I think also the first female pilot. Are robots and really female and male? Yes, in Go to Guy they are, because, you know, <laughs> the female robot looks like a chick and it fires boob missiles. Breast missiles, thank you, don't take the conversation down. No, Using such no, coarse think, language. No, actually, I think for Go to Guy, tit missiles is probably more appropriate. I think that's Gonagai. probably more on the appropriate Gonagai level. Gonagai was a genius. Gonagai is not elegant enough for breasts. It's gotta be like boobs or tits. Knocker missiles? Yes. The basic story of Mazinger is pretty standard. Because Mazinger was like the first big super robot show, I can't really blame it for being incredibly cliche because the reason it's incredibly cliche is that it was so influential that everything that came afterwards copied it. So the storyline and everything will be really familiar and the characters will be really familiar to people because it sets such a pattern. The basic story of Mazinger, and this is important to Mazinger, is that there was a team of archaeologists and they discovered this island with these ruins of a pre-Greek society. And apparently this society had an army of metal titans that were robots, basically. They're referred to as mechanical beasts or mechanical monsters. And one of the scientists or archaeologists on this team decided, hey, I could use these big giant robots to take over the world. So he kills off all the other people on the team and he takes these robots and like he builds a giant skull island castle or whatever. And he calls himself Dr. Hell. But one of the other people on the team actually managed to escape, and that was Professor Kabuto. And Professor Kabuto uses a super metal called Chogokin Z, or Super Alloy Z in the English version, to build a giant robot called Mazinger Z to defeat Dr. Hell. And Mazinger is piloted by Koji Kabuto, and there is a robot called Aphrodite A, that's piloted by, I don't know, Saika. There's a, <laughs> another robot called Boss Borat, piloted by this guy, Boss, who's this big stupid boncho. And it's a, a fairly standard story, you know, the hot-blooded hero, who, that's basically it. And your sidekick characters, the girl and the boncho that are there to basically be completely useless and annoying. You've got your villains, Dr. Hell and his flunkies like Baron Ashura. And you can tell that they're the bad guys because they're all really ugly. Baron Asher, who is actually half man, half woman, literally 
Byron Asher is literally split down the middle, and one side, like, I think the left side is a dude, and the right side is a chick. And he actually has, she, it, actually has two voices. There's a chick voice and a dude voice, and Baron Asher can talk in either one or both at the same time, which is kind of a cool effect, actually. So the hot-blooded Avatar of Justice fights the bad guys, and there's big robots, and they punch each other. Not really anything incredibly complex, but... Manly. It was meant, it was meant to entertain eight-year-olds and to be awesome, so... When you're eight, would you really notice? Probably or not. When you're 25 and an anime <laughs> fan doing a podcast, would you notice? I guess Maybe. not. So Mazinger Z was hugely popular. Like I said, it ran for 92 episodes. And after the end of Mazinger Z, actually, I think later in the year that it ended, they followed it up with another series called Great Mazinger. This was in 1974. Of course, it featured the giant robot Great Mazinger, who was like an upgraded version of Mazinger, piloted by a guy named Tetsuya Tsurugi. And then there was another girl robot called Venus A, piloted by a chick named Jun Hano. Who's awesome, and actually. Yes, actually. She's much cooler, I think, than Saiga. She's uh, like the, one of the first black characters in anime. Half, she's half Japanese, half black. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the storyline in Great Mazinger, I think, involved them going up against the great general of darkness, I think it was. Yeah. And I think Koji and Mazinger, like, come back in Great Mazinger. The Black General, they actually did do a Mazenkaiser special where it was Mazenkaiser right. versus Black General, but ADV didn't release that. Right. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that like a remake of a great Mazinger movie? It was a remake of the before? movie, yeah. I believe yeah. it was, but I, I could swear it was Mazinger Z versus Black General, so they remade it into Mazenkaiser versus Black General. I yeah. could be wrong, but... Hmm. Right. Now, the reason all this is important is that, as you can probably tell from the name, Mazenkaiser is also related to this whole series of robot shows. This is a, an OVA series from 2001. It's seven episodes long. And it features the title robot, the Mazen Kaiser, which I believe actually first appeared in Super Robot Wars F. Right, the they made it up game. for the video game, very yeah. much like how they made up the Shingetter Robo for yeah, the video so game. Yeah, so guy, I guess, did not create the Mazen Kaiser. It was made for this video game, and I guess they thought the design was really cool, so they said, hey, let's make a new OAV series and use this really awesome design. It's a little bit confusing. I guess that Mazen Kaiser is like an alternate universe retelling of Mazinger Z, because like, it doesn't seem to really happen afterwards. I thought it's, it's, it did seem to happen afterwards. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. Because well, I thought the difference between Mazenkaiser and the rest was that, like, whereas the Getterobo remakes, it's like, okay, this is its own thing. Mazenkaiser, Mazinger Z is so light on the story that, all right, this is basically what happens next, but if you didn't see what happened before, it doesn't exactly deal. take long. Well, what I've been reading from other people is that it's sort of like an alternate universe retelling, which kind of makes sense because they're fighting Dr. Hell and Baron Ashura and all of the villains from Mazinger Z, the television series, which I believe, of course, at the end of Mazinger Z, didn't they, didn't Baron Ashura die during Mazinger Z and didn't they, like, defeat I'm pretty uh, sure they got defeated every week in Mazinger yeah. Z. Well, no, I mean, they did, but didn't... But, like, I, defeated once sure, and for all? Yeah, I'm and I'm pretty sure Baron Ashura died. I don't know, maybe just the power of evil keeps you alive. I, I think know. so. I, I think they just resurrected him or something. Died. I mean, wasn't Baron Ashura like a reanimated thing anyway? Yeah, but... So maybe if he died, they just did it again off camera. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm pretty sure that Baron Ashura never reappeared in Mazinger Z after he died, so... I don't know. It's confusing because both Mazinger Z and Great Mazinger appear in this. 
which would sort of indicate that it happens after both series. But then some people said that like the design for Great Mazinger in the beginning is not the correct design. I think some and people think about this a little too hard. <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't really strike me as like all of these both series have all happened. I think Mechademia went into this in greater this detail. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But anyway, so you have Koji and Saika and also Tetsuya and Jun from Great Mazinger, except unfortunately, for some reason, Jun, despite being way cooler than lame-ass useless Saika, doesn't get to pilot even Venus A, her own fucking robot from Great Mazinger. She's just a lab assistant and gets like almost no screen time. That really sucked. Yeah, I didn't mm. like that either because, like you said, she's definitely out of all the Maria Freed and Sayaka and June Hono, June is definitely the coolest one of all yeah, three. Yeah. I would agree. To, yeah. I mean, Honestly, one of the things that I dislike most about Mazenkaiser was that just, I hate the supporting characters. I can't stand Psycho. Like, she's completely useless. And even though, like, Aphrodite A and Venus A look like they could be cool robots, they're worthless. I don't know if that's just because Sonic is piloting them or what, but... I think it's just hard to actually, live like, to be a cool robot when you've got Mazen Kaiser next to you. This is sort of a spoiler, but the only time that either one of Saika's robots does any good whatsoever is when it gets taken over by the bad guys. And when Venus A gets taken over by the bad guys, it fucks shit up. It's really awesome. When Saika's piloting it, it doesn't do a damn thing. Ultimately, the only reason Saika existed anyway was to get in trouble and yeah. do something dumb so that the hero could save right. her every week. Your I thought that was, you know, Boss Borat as well. Yeah. Jun is a lot cooler, but yeah, she doesn't really get to do very much. That must be some recurring trend, because even Michiru from Getterobo, they turned her from a robot pilot into a lab assistant for the remake. Hmm, was she half black? Probably not, with a name like <laughs> Michiru Saotome. Hmm. Well, Jun Hano isn't, isn't really a super black name or anything. But... It's kind of exactly. like how the Japanese, to hide their shame because they love the white women so much, they always make all the blonde hair, blue-eyed girls with enormous boobs half Japanese. So it's okay for them to lust over them. They're not really race traitors. <laughs> oh right, right. It's, the plot of Kaiser is, again, fairly simplistic, along with the TV series. They're all there, and they're fighting Dr. Hell and Baron Ashura and all that noise. But it's kind of cool, because instead of the regular storyline from Mazinger Z and Great Mazinger, where Koji pilots Mazinger Z, he does pilot Mazinger Z at the beginning, but they get in this really big battle with Baron Ashura and some of the mechanical beasts, and both Mazinger and Great Mazinger get trashed. That seems to happen on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> and Mazinger actually gets taken by Baron Ashura and slightly like rebuilt and modified, and then is used by the bad guys to attack their headquarters. Yeah, after like 500 episodes, they determine that maybe the weakness of Mazinger Z is the head, the little cockpit <laughs> thing. <laughs> Why Target didn't we that. Think of that before? So obvious. But yeah, when it was taken, Koji manages to, his uh, cockpit, the little pilder, which is what they call it, not bilder, like the subtitles on the DVD say. But yeah, the subtitles yeah. on this Mazenkaiser release are definitely bad. Very yeah, bad. Not, it's not the Hover Bilder ADD, it's the Hover Pilder. Apparently, this OAVs were subtitled by somebody who knew nothing whatsoever about Mazinger. 
Yeah, the story that I've heard was that also, they were putting out like 30 discs a month and, and there was no I one to check were... it. There's a lot of little things in those subtitles like Koji spelled K-O-U-J-I, which is kind of annoying, especially when the back cover spells it the K-O-J-I right, that right. everyone's kind of used to. I think both are technically correct. Both are probably technically right. right. It's just the other spelling that they use in the subtitle is something you just never see. Right, just use right. one. It doesn't really right. matter. And also it doesn't match the back cover. Also, there was a lot of like typos. There were a lot of places where they would leave out articles. Like they would leave out the word the in sentences. And so you would have some kind of semi-broken English subtitles, which was really aggravating. This happened multiple occasions. It was dumb. So, yeah. Koji's hover piler gets ripped off of Mazinger and it gets chucked. God even knows how far. Luckily, because he's the main character and he has plot armor, he doesn't die from this. He lands in a cave and staggers out. And Wonder of Wonders finds himself conveniently staggering into another secret lab that his uh, his grandfather had used. And I think this was the same one where Great Mazinger was built. And in addition to Mazinger Z and Great Mazinger, he apparently built yet another robot, the most powerful robot in existence, the Mazin Kaiser. While Mazinger can give Koji the power to be either god or a devil, the Mazin Kaiser gives him the power to surpass both. It's really awesome, basically. And it looks really cool. So, Koji... I actually think the actual Mazen Kaiser design looks kind of weird. I like the design. It looks neat, it just looks a lot different. Yeah, it looks weird when it's standing next to the other ones, because it definitely looks very different. Being very early robot shows, Mazinger Z and Great Mazinger had very simplistic designs, whereas Mazen Kaiser is much more of a detailed, complicated design. Mm Mm-hmm. So it definitely looks different, and I guess the difference is kind of jarring, but I think it's a cool design. And so Koji gets in the Mazen Kaiser and comes back to save the day, and the fight continues on and all that other stuff happens. Jun and Tetsuya unfortunately leave for the majority of the OVA series, so Tetsuya got totally beat up as his uh, great Mazinger was being turned into scrap metal, can heal, and they also, I guess, find another great Mazinger that was, like, stored away somewhere. I think this is the reason people said it's, like, a retelling, is that apparently the great Mazinger that they had before was, like, a prototype, and they found the real great Mazinger, which is, again, I think why some people said it's a retelling, not a sequel. I don't maybe know. the real one they found was the real prototype all along. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. But anyway, eventually they come back and help out. I've never been able to read the original manga for Mazinger Z, so I don't really know whether this is correct or not, but according to what I've heard other people say, this is based more off of the manga for Mazinger Z as opposed to the anime, and basically what that means is it's more violent and there's a lot more tits. Mazen Kaiser in general is basically the equivalent of a fan service anime for giant robot fans. Just kind of replace panty shots or boobs or maid outfits or whatever with robots. It's a very simplistic story, but the robots are cool and there's really good action scenes and it's a fun watch. And let's face it, after Evangelion and all these robot shows that were trying to be real ponderous and deep, sometimes you do just want to <laughs> yes. see someone get yeah. in a robot and smash things up without being like, can't run away, can't run away. Right. I mean, the first episode yeah. of Mazen Kaiser is just 30 minutes of just insanity. Just yeah. stuff exploding and you no idea what's really what's going on. I liked it, though, because it's like a 
I'm used to watching a lot of the giant robot TV series where they have these fights and it's like, the fight might be a little tough, but you have all these generic monster, like, robot of the week fights, and mostly they're dispatched fairly easily. And even though the fight might be a little tough, you know, the robot doesn't really get super wrecked. So it's kind of nice in Mazenkaiser, especially in that first episode right off the bat, to just kind of have, like, Mazinger and Great Mazinger just get destroyed. It was pretty brutal. Strangely, the shittiest robot of all, which is Boss Borat, does not need to be replaced. Boss Borat is just known for being invincible. Yes. Despite the fact that it's a robot a guy built in his backyard or whatever. Yeah, it's made out of, like, trash and spare parts. It's the shittiest robot ever. It's and a robot that's talk. designed to be destroyed multiple times. Yeah, yeah, it's designed to just get beat up and keep yeah. coming back for more every single time so that it's he's just constantly a nuisance. Character. Yes. In the video game, since you're talking about how the design for Mazenkaiser came from this video game, Boss Borat's in the game too, and even mm -hmm. though he can never hit anything and can never attack anything, he's practically impossible to kill because he can heal himself <laughs> fully over yes. and over and over again. <laughs> So you can just kind of send him out there to, like, beat on things endlessly. And then they use up all their ammunition trying to destroy the boss Borat. Yes, which is pretty good. Yes, um, you have to grow to love boss Borat. Yeah, I don't know, I'm not too fond of the character, and the robot's pretty hideous, but he's useful in the video game. He was kind, like, not so much He's usefully useless. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's an interesting concept, yeah. So yeah, in addition to the robot fan service, they felt the need to add more, like, tits fan service, and that's sort of okay, except for the fact that, as I've already mentioned, I don't really like Saiga very much. I would have been much more well-disposed to Jun fan service, because she's at least cool. Once again, Japan fails us. The lack yeah. of Jun fan service, the lack of Erd Dojinshi. Yeah. What, what do they have? Uh, the lack of Piratus. What do they have against the dark-skinned chicks, huh? Well, they're Japan. Damn know, that. They're all racist. I, I have to say that, like, the episode I disliked the most is probably episode four, which was the most pointless episode, because it was just like, let's take our giant robots to the beach and then have a lot of pointless boobs jiggling around, and Saiga will, of course, get in trouble. Or in again. the case of Baron Ashura, pointless boob. That wasn't in that episode. It wasn't? No, that was a different episode. Oh. Uh-huh. That was a more different episode. That was the episode where Baron Ashura impersonated Saika's dad to, like, sneak into the base to try and blow it up and blow up Mazinger. And got back to the room and, like, took off the disguise to reveal, ha-ha, it's Baron Ashura. Not like you didn't already know. And then Baron Ashura takes a shower and gropes his, like, one boob. <laughs> Strange bit of pseudo-fan service. Although, my favorite part is the fact that, like, Baron Asher's collar and hood remain on. When he takes the fake professor head off, he's still got the hood and the collar on under it. And when he strips out naked to get in the shower, the collar and the hood are still on. So I'm trying to figure out, like, is the hood actually attached to its head? Is it, like, part of Baron Asher's head? It's kind of, of like Captain Avatar off. from uh, Star Blazers. The, the yeah, it's like the hat goes off head. once you die, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe that's how it works, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think probably the most complicated thing in, in Mazenkaiser that requires the most amount of thought is probably trying to figure out what the state of Baron Asher's naughty bits is, because it's kind of a horrifying concept, but at the same time I'm compelled. Can't stop trying to figure out exactly how that works. Like Gil Which, from Street Fighter 3, is like yeah. half of his dick solid ice and half of it flame? <laughs> Maybe that's why Baron Asher is so angry and evil and wants to, like, destroy everything, because, you know, 
pissed off at having like really messed up, probably non-functional genitalia. Yeah. Anyway, I think the highlights of Maz and Kaiser are definitely, they've got a great soundtrack, of course, opening and endings by Jam Project, who... The de facto well, sound for giant familiar. robots. Yeah, if you watch any giant robot things, or you play any of the Super Robot Wars games, you've heard Jam Project before. They're made up of a whole bunch of different musicians, like singers, that have done stuff for robot shows. And yeah, Masami Okui and uh, Hironobu Kageyama. Basically, Hironobu Kageyama and everybody else. Yeah, basically. So, and I like Jam Project stuff a lot, and I like the Mazenkaiser opening a lot as well. I think it's a really good song. The animation being a more recent OAV, even though it's still got the Gonagai character designs, the animation is new, so it's very shiny and polished. Looks really good, and the fight scenes are really good. They're really well animated, they're really dynamic. I it's also that, most of the show. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is probably, it's a good thing that they're well done, because otherwise it would fail horribly, because that is most of what goes on. I think also one of the things I, I like about Mazenkaiser, even though it's not perfect, I think it hits some of the high points, especially in some of those fight scenes. I think especially the first episode or two and like the last episode or two were probably the best in terms of the really epic nonsense and awesomeness. But one of the things that's kind of nice about Mazenkaiser is I like having it condensed down to so few episodes. So many of these giant robot shows, even though I like them, after like 30 episodes of random enemy robot with progressively shittier designs attack and are beaten and that's it and nothing really important happens. Even though I, I like robot shows that can get a little old, but you don't really get that. They do have a lot of generic mechanical beasts that they throw out at the robots in the OAVs, but one thing is that they often throw multiple of them out at a time. So it's not like one episode one enemy robot. I mean, they do have a little bit of that, but they also have like really big, large-scale battles where they throw a whole bunch of them. And it's not like... A revolutionary so idea. Send more than one monster of the week. Yes. <laughs> See, I think Baron Ashura is smart like that. It's Baron Dr. Ashura's Hell's like, scheme. Yes, it is. Well, it's hard to tell who's really making the plans for each individual Dr. Attack. Hell is a doctor. <laughs> Ashura is just a Baron. All right. Okay. I wonder what kind of doctor he was originally. I mean, I know they yeah. showed the flashback picture. It's like, who would have guessed Dr. Hell would go evil? It's like a bunch of dignified scientists and Dr. Hell. Yeah. Who's like, I, I don't think his actual name is Dr. Hell, but... I think his name I think is like Thaddeus J. Hell. I don't oh, know. okay. Well, I think that weren't they like archaeologists because they were excavating that pre-Greek civilization or something? So I assume they're all archaeologists. That would be very I disappointing. Know, I would have wanted them to have been like a veterinarian or something. I don't know how archaeologists would know how to build a giant robot. But, You're overthinking or like this. repair a giant robot, but yeah, I think that's, that's too much logic. Scientists can do anything. The yes. curse that I have watching Fist of the North Star resurfaces once again. I think too much about these things. This is a show that will yeah, like, that will prepare your chest. I think Mike Dent was IMing me at like 2 a.m. going on and on about Fudo from Fist of the North Star. <laughs> Fudo, why? <laughs> Didn't have to happen, man. <laughs> But so yeah, Mazenkaiser being anyway. so condensed and like not taking all that long to watch. I mean, it, I think it keeps up the pace a lot better because it's so condensed. So I guess like in the end, Mazenkaiser 
if you don't like robots, this is not the show that you're going to be able to show somebody that's going to make them change their mind about robot shows. Hell this no. Isn't like, this isn't like Ava, where people who don't particularly like giant robot shows will watch Ava because there's a lot of other stuff going on that draws them in. Mazen Kaiser, there's not really anything else for them to be interested in, so... You're probably not going to want to show this to anyone who doesn't dig giant robots, at least somewhat. Yeah, it's a very concentrated try, giant robot manliness show. Yeah, it's a type of show that I, I saw Clarissa the day after she saw this, and she had a full beard. That This is how manly <laughs> the show is. This show, it's not going to change your life or anything. Well, I mean, I don't think so. Maybe, but it's not really particularly going to make you think very hard. But If it's, you're a female, it could turn you into a man. Potentially, maybe. I heard. But it might, like, fuck you up and make you, like, bear an ashram. You'd be, like, this bizarre half-man, half-woman walking around <laughs> for the rest of your life. I don't know. But it's a very entertaining watch. Like, if you just want to sit back and watch some stuff blow up and see some really well-animated, cool, epic battle scenes with some really awesome music, this is definitely something I would recommend you go for. It hits some of the great high points, I think, of what makes me like giant robot stuff, even though it's not perfect. So I think if you can find it for fairly cheap, I'd pick it up. It's only two discs. It's seven episodes. I bought it as it was coming out. Mm. It's not my favorite giant robot thing, but it was it was enjoyable. I think Top Spot still has to go to Gal Gaidon. Hmm. Masabu Nishiro is like the idea man. He's like... You know, what if there was a future where everybody was a cyborg in some way? And people are like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. And then he's like, and they're lesbians and they have sex with each other while removing each other's arms. That's it, get out! And also horses, anthropomorphic horses, and everybody gets their breasts milked. And then someone buys the rights to his idea and makes it tases him. And makes a good anime. They put him in a potato sack and throw him off a ship, <laughs> but he just keeps coming back. This is the robot saving. Fast karate for the gentleman. Because the speed of your karate is the only thing that can save you. And that concludes show number 48 of the Anime World Order podcast. I guess we made it through yet another one. Somehow. Yeah. Next week, as the time of this recording, is going to be Megacon, so I'm not quite sure if we'll have a Megacon report for you in show 49 or not. It'll probably be like show 51 at the rate at which we get around to talking about things. <laughs> but if you liked what you heard this time, if you want to check out some of these things, you can go to our website at www.animeworldorder.com, and we will have some additional links so you can know where to find things, such as Satsuma Gishiden. Mm-hmm. And Spirit of Wonder. Mazen Kaiser, you should still have no trouble finding, but we might put a link up for that anyway. In any case, if you're really, really mad that we gave away the secret to Spirit of Wonder, <laughs> <laughs> or gave away plot spoilers of Mazen Kaiser by saying that Koji got in the robot and fought guys, <laughs> send us email, animeworldorder at gmail.com. You can also leave us voicemail messages, even though we've got probably enough voicemails to do a voicemail-only show at this point. Yeah. But yeah. Because we never play them. That number is 206-666-4296. Next week on the show, <laughs> I am going to be doing another Dark Horse Comics manga review. Probably about as different from Satsuma Gishinen as you can get. Well, maybe not, since there's still corpses involved. 
It's the Kurosagi Corpse Delivery Service. I'm going to be taking a look at one of my favorite sci-fi action movies. Not Crusher Joe this time. I'm going to be taking a look at a movie that's celebrating its 20th anniversary, the Dirty Pair movie Project Eden. Totally different from Crusher Joe. Exactly. Yes, completely. <laughs> no relation. <laughs> and, uh... After the manly onslaught of Maz and Kaiser, I figured I'd go back over into the more girly territory for a little bit again. Yeah, it's putting and hair on her chest, the Maz and Kaiser. Yeah, yeah, I gotta get rid of that. So I'm going to be taking a look at a fairly recent series, Loveless. So look forward to those next time. Once again, we thank you for putting up with our bullshit. We'll see you around next time on the Anime World Order podcast. Tip your waitresses. Unless you don't believe in tipping like Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <laughs>